Title of my sermon this morning is called Move in the Midst. If you've been here for uh, more than one service, I preach every sermon a lot different. I, I kind of improvise, move around a little bit. I don't like yeah, ever preach the same sermon exactly, even close to the same. Um, but, but the heartbeat's going to be the same. Um, Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 7. Man, I'm excited about the word. I love it. It's the first time I've heard that. Come to a church. It's cool. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Sounds like me as a Clipper fan. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out complaining violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, got a problem here called his word is, is, is in my heart like a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. That's what he was known as because he didn't have a lot of results that humans would consider to be results. His job was to show up, to preach the word, to be faithful, and have zero results, basically. And so he got frustrated. He got discouraged. He understood his mission like so many people do. He got it. He knew what he was supposed to do. But at the same time, even knowing what he's supposed to do, it's nice to get some response, right? It's nice to get some victories under your belt. But I think he just got tired in the, in the mandate of speaking a word that nobody would listen. And uh, he got frustrated along the way. And he said, I just think I'm going to quit. I'm going to go up to the mountaintop area. I'm just going to throw in the towel. And as he was doing that, he had one little problem as he was doing that. And that was he had this issue in his heart. He had this fire that was shut up in his bones. That when he tried to run from it, he couldn't really run from it because there was something in him that just had to keep moving towards his mission of preaching the gospel. There was something in him that just wouldn't let him go. But I think the desire to want to quit, we all can... Uh, kind of relate to that. Um, when I was a young pastor raised at Tommy Barnett's home, you know, it's uh, my dad's always like, you know, just keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. You can get through to the other side, you know, and, uh, and if, if the wall gets thicker, get a thicker helmet, right? Just run through it. And I just kind of raised under that toughness, you know, and uh, that mindset that, that um, you know, I had to cut out quit in the dictionary as a kid growing up, right? And uh, so it's one of those things. But as, as years go on, I understand why people get to the place of their life where they just kind of want to fold up or they just want to retreat or maybe not get out of bed in the morning. I understand. And that's kind of what Jeremiah felt like. He said, why bother? No one's listening. Why get out there and move every day and preach and bring the word when nobody's listening? And it was a, a very, very challenging era in his life. And I look at so many great men of God, like Pastor Billy Joe, I'll never forget the time I preached here. And, uh, and uh, when I was done speaking, he prophesied over me in the back room. And he gave me the most beautiful word. It was so powerful. It was touching. I was tearing up. And he prophesied and he prayed over me. And then he was done. He looked me in the eye and said, now let's go, let's go to the carousel. I'm like, a carousel? That was the most amazing moment. Now all of a sudden, and then like two minutes later, we're riding around in the carousel in the back. I'm like, this is the greatest moment ever. Prophetic and childlike at the same time, right? I'm like, where's the cotton candy next? You know, it was awesome. It was a great moment. But, uh, 
But you know, there's the, the legends of the faith, and you look at people. I remember even my father going through an era of his life of struggle where it was just hard for him to get up and get moving for a period of time. Everyone who's in the Hall of Fame in the Word of God had one thing in common, and that is they had a visitation. They had a moment where they just said, why bother? Why should I even consider going on? My daughter, would, uh, when she was five years of age, she, uh, she had an attitude one day. She didn't like what her parents told her. And uh, so she said, you know what, Mom and Dad, I'm going to run away from home at five years of age. You know you're a parent of the year when they want to run away at five years of age, right? I go, you want to run away? And she goes, yes, you wouldn't give me something. And, I mean, you know, she, since then we got that out of her. But anyway, she, she was five, and uh, she was kind of mad, you know. And, uh, and so she said, I'm leaving. I'm running away from home. And so she went into her room, got her little princess uh, 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 suitcase, and was walking out the door. And I said, honey, I'm going to miss you. It was wonderful having you for five years in the house. And she said, yep, I'm running away. And she got outside. She carried her little bag, and she was walking down the road. I'm like, bye. And she's like, bye. She's walking down. And then I said, be careful, though, because there's mountain lions around this area everywhere. And there's bears. Please be careful. And she stopped. And she turned around. She said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to give you one more chance. And that's what Jeremiah said. He said, God, I've gone 100 yards down the road here, and uh, I think I'm going to quit. It's like Nacho Libre. Remember a lot of Nacho Libre when he said he was going to quit? Remember the movie Nacho Libre? He said he's going to quit the ministry, and he left, and he went on this long journey, and he was really only 100 yards away from the town, you know? That's kind of like what Jeremiah is going through right now. He's only 100 miles away, 100 yards away from the town, but he's still, he has this fire that has shut up in his bones. And there's something about giving your life to God. And moving forward in hard times and crashing through quitting points and crashing through barriers that, that even though you might entertain the idea uh, of leaving, there's something in you that just won't let you go. But you got to keep moving in the middle of the midst of what you're going through. you got to keep praying when you don't feel it. David felt that way after his sin and after his compromise and all the things that he had done. He said, my bones are wasting away all day. If you read what David was saying in Psalms 32, you see an unbelievable depression by which this man is going through. But after the death of his own son, which was caused by his unfaithfulness to God, what does he do? He gets up, he says, he washes his face, and he starts moving in the midst of his pain. And God begins to slowly restore things back to his life. I tell people all the time we show up in our program, in our rehab program. We got 20-year meth addicts. We take in probably 14 to 16 people in rehab a day. Every day they're lining up. Come again. We take in 30 people a month from the court system who sentences people to the Dream Center instead of 10-year prison sentences. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. And they come here into the program, and uh, the first question we ask them is, what is your dream? And it freaks them out because they're living in survival mode their entire life. They're living in, like, how can I survive one more day? How can I hustle for one more day? But when they come in the dream center, we say, look, your meals are taken care of, your housing's taken care of, everything's taken care of. What is your dream? And that becomes a game changer when we ask that question because the Bible says where there's no revelation, people have no self-control. But when they have a vision, something to live for, you can't just treat the addiction. You have to give somebody something to live for that is so powerful. When, when people fail, we don't remind them of their shame. When people fail, we shine a, a blinding light of hope immediately to give them something great to live for. 
You know, every day the police, the police are bringing people to the Dream Center in handcuffs. And like literally they'll pull up and they'll be in handcuffs and they'll walk them into registration to check people into our rehab program. And as the police on chains and shackles are bringing people, when, when I see them walk up to the registration floor in the 15-story hospital as they're going up to floor number 11 and they get in the elevator, I don't look at that guy and say, man, I wonder what he did to be in prison. There was nothing wrong if I, if I thought that. But I look at him and I say, I wonder what this man's going to become in one year. Amen. I wonder what's going to happen when he just starts moving in the direction of the presence of God. And, and, but, but, but he's in this place of his life in Jeremiah, but, but he decided to move in the midst of his pity party, move in the midst of his struggle, move in the midst of his pain. That movement might be forgiving the person that's hurt you the most. The movement might be setting someone free that you've got the greatest uh, area of bitterness towards and finally letting it go so that you can surge in the calling that God has for you. That movement might be dusting off the Bible and say, you know what, I'm coming back to the word of God. God's not going to be mad at you. He's not going to hold a grudge like humans do and say, oh, now, finally, you want to talk to me. God's going to be like, I did, I'm Motel 6. I've been leaving the light on you for, for years for you to come on back. Move in the midst. Just keep moving. When, when the pandemic happened in Los Angeles, we were the first ones to shut down um, California. And so when the announcement was made, I, I ran to our team. I said, we got to start moving. we got to start doing something to help people. This is not just going to be a major poverty issue um, of hunger in our neighborhood People are going to lose jobs. It's all going to fall apart really quickly in our community. And uh, the schools are going to be shut down for a year. I knew exactly because I was getting some of the information about where this was heading. And so I said immediately, I said, in 48 hours, we need to go. We need to start helping people because it's not a crisis of food and scarcity. There's going to be a crisis of spirit. We need to be out there. We need to start serving. And so we went out there, and in 48 hours, people were like, Crazy. I mean, people started like sending tw uh, Twitter messages, Instagram, celebrities. They were like, help the Dream Center. People I didn't even know. Like, like they, but they were just looking for some flashpoint of hope. And so every day, we'd just be out there and, uh, and, and serving people. And one day, it was a few, like 12 families. And then it became 50. And before long, it was 11 hours a day, seven days a week for 240 straight days. We were on the food line. And I'm putting food in people's cars and going home at night and had to overcome the fear because you watch television. I'd be like, oh, my goodness. There's no way in the world that, I, that I'm healthy, right? I'm serving this many people at one time. But I began to kind of fear a little bit um, what we were doing because we were serving so much. And then God spoke to me. He said, you cannot fear what you choose to love. Perfect love casts out all fear. If you love the people and you love them with all your heart, you can't fear anything because love is a greater force than fear. If you love what you fear, fear will never overtake you. And so we just started serving out there. And, and cars were coming by. And... And I can't even tell you because the first layoffs that took place were usually like single mothers. When they were cutting budgets, they got hit the hardest. And so um, we began to give, um, our housing was full at the Dream Center. 250 people, are homeless families live in our building. We had 300 on the waiting list trying to get in. So we had to give gas, we were giving gas cards away for families just so that they can live in their cars and mothers. It was just the most heart-wrenching thing in one lady, it was two weeks, I haven't seen her come by the line. She used to come by every day. I said, why, didn't, why haven't you come by? She said, I ran out of gas and I couldn't get to your line. And I said, well, look, I'm just going to keep giving you gas cards because you need to keep coming through. We want to love you. We want to serve you. And she just kept coming through. But, and then one day she came up to me. She said, Pastor, she said, I want to thank you for taking the gun out of my hand. Wow. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, and I, I go, what do you mean by that? She said, well, 
She said, I was living in my car. I had nothing left, and I had nothing left to live for, so I was just going to kill myself. But she said, the only joy that I had in my life was coming to the Dream Center line and getting food and seeing everyone jump up and down and ring the bell for me and bang the gong. And uh, we just made a big deal about everything. We were just celebrating people. They were, and she said, that act alone was enough to keep me from taking my own life. People were coming by the food line two and three times. And, they were, and I, I would say, why are you coming by? We already gave you food. They said, no, we're coming by the second time because we want to see people just celebrate the fact that we're alive. We want people just to make a big deal. And we just started like singing, worshiping, praying from the rooftops, just having a big time. And the only outing people had was going through the food line to see some people that were happy to see them. And they were blessed. It was, a, it was an amazing thing. And we just decided, you know, in, in those 48 hours to move. That's been the, 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 the vision the whole time is, is constantly moving forward. When we bought the Queen of Angels Hospital, man, we got so much hate mail. When we bought that 400,000 square foot hospital in the Hollywood Freeway, I mean, now it's an iconic building. It's like, it's like Staples Center. I mean, every single movie, you'll see the Dream Center building uh, on that Hollywood Freeway. And, and during the pandemic, everybody wants to buy it now because they think that we're not going to make it, right? They're like, well, in 20-something years, we finally got something to, to, uh, that, that's going to wipe out the church, right? Uh, so we can uh, repurpose it for other things or businesses or big corporations, whatever. It's like the landmark property. And, uh, and so people come by, and, and I made us an offer, and like, hey, we'll give you $95 million for this building. And I said, I'll take it. No, I didn't say it. <laughs> I, look, I look in the eye, I said, nope, no, no, you can't, you can't, you can't. This is not for sale. People coming off of drugs and being set free by the power of God, that's not for sale. Homeless families have a place to live. That's not for sale. When we bought the building, people called my father and I reckless and irresponsible and hate mail and people saying this is going to be the biggest mistake you ever made in your life. And I'd get that email and I would look at it and I would actually agree with them. Have you ever agreed with your haters? Like you weren't even mad at them. You're like, you're right. What are we doing? You know, I've been, I'm like, I read their point of view. I'm like, absolutely, they're 100% right. Why, what are we doing? Why are we buying this thing? But as we're questioning ourselves, we're just keeping our feet moving, right? We're just keep shuffling because that's what faith is. Faith isn't always, oh my goodness, everything's going to be perfect. Sometimes you got a lot of fear. Sometimes you got a lot of doubts in the midst of it. But the fact that it's faith is the fact that you just keep your feet moving towards something, knowing that God is greater than the fear. Ultimately, it's going to show itself stronger than what you're battling with. So my dad and I, we were just reading the hate mail. We're like, you're right. In the natural, you're right. In the natural, a lot of people are right. In the natural, but in the supernatural, there's a whole different dimension. Amen. So my dad and I, we went to a restaurant one night to think about buying the hospital. And, and uh, we had this little napkin. We wrote the pros and the cons of doing it. And say the pros of buying the building is that it's a big hospital, you know. And But we start with the cons. We went over there with cons. We're like, uh, it's $4 million, and we only took in $50,000 in our homeless church the first year. We needed $4 million in 18 months that the Catholic Church wanted to sell it to us. And so that's a pretty big con. Second con is 80% of our staff are ex-cons. So that's a really big con right there, you know. And we needed, we needed three pages to write down all the cons. And then we had one pro, and that's basically, or two, we had a big building, and what if? 
Do you know that your pros and cons don't have to line up perfectly in order for you to take a leap of faith? Usually they don't. Usually the level they stack against you is the level by which God gets the greater glory because he gets some miracle space between what you can do and what you can do where he gets the glory. If you spend your life only doing what you can do, you'll spend your life living, living in this, this mind game of a limited thinking in your brain and you'll only accomplish what your brain can accomplish. But you know what we do? We create this little miracle space. We think it's God. Well, you know, because I'm reaching my potential, it's God. Here's my power, and here's my task. I'm right up against it, so I'm spiritual. No, that's not, that's not what it is to serve God. Serving God is miracle space. It's creating some space between what you can do and what you can't do, and you need God to make up the difference. It's doing crazy things like you guys did during this time, unconventional things. Preaching from a crane, drive-through services, a revolutionary stuff. God hasn't called the church to be relevant. God's called the church to be revolutionary. Amen? We run to the battle. We move in the midst. We run to the hungry child. We run to the girl that needs a car. We run to the situation. We don't run away from anything because the full armor of God was not given to us to wear on the back side. The full armor of God was given to us to wear on the front side. Why? Is there no armor to give us on the back side? Because God never intended for us to show our back to the enemy. He gave us a full armor of God so that we can continue to move forward. That's who we are. That's all we know. That's the legacy of this ministry. That's why pillars being strong in hard times shows the power of God. It's the power of Jeremiah to remind himself, and he did remind himself. In verse 11, he says, I have a mighty warrior on, the, on his side. And one translation says, I have a mighty warrior on the inside. In other words, you got to keep going to find the mighty warrior on the inside. Sometimes it feels like it's not there, but you just keep moving forward. You keep moving forward until it's there. And, and sometimes it's not always feeling. It's about passing the checkpoints of, of wanting to turn back and overcoming the doubts and the struggles in your mind. That's why I'm so glad you guys have been talking about the mind. It's overcoming those barriers and in you that stop you from wanting to take on the challenge because your mind starts limiting what's possible because you start thinking in the rationale of what only humans can do and not think according to what faith can ignite within your spirit. I remember when I, when I, when I was pastoring, man, there's some lonely nights. I was 20 years of age. I was walking through the streets of L.A. I had no friends in the whole city of L.A. for two years. I wanted to go back home every single week. As I, I told you before, I was only supposed to be there for three months pastoring until my dad found a real pastor. And my dad just left me in L.A. He's like, peace out. And I just, no. And I'm just, I'm there just trying to figure it out. And I, every weekend I would like want to go back home. And God spoke to me. He said, I don't want you to leave this city until you love this city. Stay here. So, I, so every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, I stayed home. And I went to Pioneer Chicken for Thanksgiving. It's $2.99, greasy chicken. Man, you bite it, and like the anointing oil just comes out. It's the most hideous place on the planet. I mean, it was awful. But uh, I was just talking to homeless people, and finally, after two years, I finally learned to love the city of L.A., and that's the time where God said, I want you to be here for the rest of your life. I, w I just wanted you to keep on serving. And Pastor Paul asked me the question last night, a great question. He said, hey, what's kept you going for 28 years of ministry? And this is what's kept me going is... I had a love for the finish line before I even started. 
My vision is for the finish line before I even start, which means I don't have to worry about things happen in the pacing of a year or five years. I don't have to have a five-year goal, a 10-year goal. I just be faithful, and then life begins to unfold. We couldn't plan for a pandemic and the revival that broke out in L.A. We just kept showing up. The ministry of showing up is powerful. The ministry of just showing up every day. You never know when, when you're such a time as this moment is. That's why you've got to keep moving in the midst of what's happening, because you don't know when your divine season really could be in your life but faithfulness gives you the chance to find that out move in the midst overcome the barriers of your life so many lonely nights so many days of being 20 and just wondering what was going on back at home and uh, and just being so frustrated and, and living on skid row in order to try to figure out how to reach the homeless people for several days and and I remember those experiences of of living down those areas and just and dealing with all the different issues and getting in my, ten, my car, driving down the 10 freeway, uh, quitting the ministry, going back to, going back to Phoenix. And I was just going to show up and tell my dad it's over. And I'd drive down the 10. And I would stop at the only Dairy Queen in L.A., which was an hour outside of L.A. near Palm Springs. And I'd go to that little roadside Dairy Queen and say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to quit the ministry. And I'd get this little Dairy Queen blizzard. I'd eat it. Peanut Buster Parfait. And I'd be eating it. And the Lord would say, just give me one more day. The Lord has used Dairy Queen many times, as you can tell, to save my ministry. <laughs> when you laugh that way, you judge me. <laughs> but I ran seven marathons. My time of being fit is over. Amen. <laughs> the heroes in the Bible are not people who never wanted to quit. They were people who kept moving even though they wanted to quit. I remember during the... Um, World Marathon Challenge, for those of you, uh, a lot of new people, but a few years ago I ran the seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. I'll repeat that. Seven marathons, 26.2 miles, and a point two matters, right? If you've run a marathon, the point two matters. Um, seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Um, one day a, a guy texted me a message. He said, Pastor, you ought to run the marathon challenge. Don't you love those people in your church that volunteer you to do things they would never do? They got the spirit of you volunteerism on them, you know? It's like, I believe you, pastor, should do this. I believe you should jump out of a plane. We, we had this guy in our church who's like that. And he texted me a message saying, you should run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Look what these people are doing. And I responded back. I said, man, they are pretty amazing, but I'm not going to do it. And then uh, he responded back, and it was a bubble, bubble. You know, you see the text coming in. But it was like a really long one. I'm like, oh, no, here comes a prophetic word. Here comes all this stuff. And I get this whole thing about the 777, what it means, like insight on the rapture and all this, you know, and all this information. And then, but then at the end, as I read to the bottom, he's like, Pastor, if you do this for the Dream Center, I know that you guys had 200 more beds, and I know you're in a lot of need right now. He said, if you do this marathon, I think it's of God. I will give the Dream Center $100,000. And I'm like, suddenly I feel the Holy Ghost in my legs, you know. I just like... Sure, I said yes. He goes, 24 hours, I'll give you the money. I'm like, great. He says, one year from now. I'm like, oh, one year, it will never come, right? So we're good. Oh, it always, the calendar always turns, right? And uh, so we're getting ready to train, and all these people run like these crazy marathons. They had a whole biography of every one of them, and like, you know, these couples run like three marathons a week, you know, as like wild. And then like Pastor Matthew Barnett is famous. He's the only guy who, who has never run an ultra marathon. He's only run two marathons his whole life. Yeah, blood clots in 2015, you know, I'm just like, I am the poster boy for why this is not going to work. And so uh, all these guys in rehab are greeting me on the way out. Pastor, you can do it. 
We get to the marathon, and, we, and, you, and so we fly to Antarctica. I wish I would have paid attention in school. I would have known that Antarctica is a continent. And we started there, and an old Russian plane drops us off on this glacier, and we're all running. And, uh, and, and there's this one guy. He, he's an older gentleman, and I won't say, I, I don't say age and old anymore because people get offended. He was distinguished. And this man... He's like, I'm going to get to the end. We're like laughing. Like, There's no way this guy's going to get to the end. Because we ran the first marathons in like four hours and 30 minutes, the first four on average. We were cruising. We went to Antarctica, finished, got in a plane, went to South America, got in a plane, went to Miami, Madrid, Morocco, Dubai, and Australia. And the first four, we were flying. On marathon number five, I tore my patella tendon and my knee and still managed to get to seven. It was incredible. But this guy, this guy, he literally was like doing this the whole time. Like this. I mean, he looked funny and everything. We kind of made fun of him, to be honest with you, because he was like this. And he's all, you got young guys made fun of me. He said, I'm going to get to the end. We're like, not running that slow. You're not going to get the eight-hour mark, you know, because he's just shuffling. And uh, seven hours, 23 minutes, you know, and 6.55. And, and finally, at the end, we're in the last two marathons. We had, like, legendary runners, Hall of Fame runners came out of retirement. Like, Ryan Hall came out to run with me, one of the greatest marathons, but he hadn't been training for a while. And we're watching Marathon 7. This little shuffle guy, he, like, passed us. In Marathon 8, he passed us again. And I realized you can cover a lot of ground by just shuffling and staying consistent. And he's beating, like, world champions by number 7. And all he's doing is keeping his feet moving. You've got to keep your feet moving all the time in prayer and in forgiveness and in the right spirit and the right attitude. Whatever applies to you in vision, you've got to keep those feet moving forward because you never know what will happen. And so you keep moving ahead. When, um, when Christmas time last year, we had 20,000 presents. We were going to give away to the neighborhood, 1,000 bicycles crazy. We had it all set up, this big old thing, a drive through present giveaway at the Dream Center with a, these glorious lights, like a light show that people can see, and just trying to bring Christmas back. It was just over a year of just everything shutting down all the time, and like no school. We just want to have one big event, and uh, it was a drive through We went, we pops her trunk, we put everything in the trunk, and no contact, you know, Darth Vader mask, everything, you know, and so we made it all clear what we we're going to do, and, um, and so we were ready to go and, and start it, and we had approvals, and the last minute, um, the county of L.A., the city, uh, calls us and said, we're going to need you guys to shut down your event. And, and, I just, and I responded back to them. I said, that's cool. I mean, you know, we, we'll listen to you guys. No problem. We don't want to fight. No big deal. But I have to do something. I have to go on Instagram and tell all of our followers and the kids in the neighborhood that we can't do it because you guys are shutting it down. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can tell them, you know, that, you know, that we I said, sure, okay. So I got, I got on Instagram. I began to share you know, we can't do this event. We wish we could. We wish the children could get presents. We wish all this could happen. Um, but the county's not allowing this to happen. I don't think they realized what was going to happen. They had 700,000 views. Like close to a million, I think, when it was all said and done. I, I'm not even counting Facebook. So there's like probably 2 million views with everything combined. And it became like a national story that L.A. is trying to shut down Christmas, you know. And, uh, and all these elves are going to have stocking their presents. And, like, the guys in rehab, they're showing pictures of the guys in our rehab program, big old strong guys taking presents and walking them back, you know. And uh, it's kind of a PR nightmare. And, uh, and we, all I was doing was just sharing information, right. And, and there's a guy that was out there, and he was... Um, He's the biggest supporter of our governor, like, uh, financially, and, and he supported many different campaigns. Hillary Clinton, he's, like, the number one Democratic um, supporter. And 
for some weird reason, he was watching the Dream Center, and he started calling me his pastor. I had no idea who this guy is. He's extremely influential. I won't even give you his name, but a very influential player in pretty much every component of business. Calls me on the phone. He's like, will you be my pastor? I'm like, who are you? And he starts telling me all the things he's done very boldly and uh, very proud to talk about what he's done, you know. And uh, I'm just listening. I said, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll be your pastor. Man, can I pray for you? It was the most strange thing that's ever happened out of the blue. And he said, I heard that, that my friend is giving, uh, the, gov the government's giving you a hard time. I said, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. We wish you could do it. He said, no, no, it's going to happen. You're going to have your event. I go, really? He goes, trust me. I'll make some calls. And then, and then the governor texts him. And he shares a text with me that he got from the governor saying, I can't believe they're shutting this down. I will pound the county of L.A. and make sure this opens up. They went from, you better not have your event, two hours later to like, hey, Dream Center, how's it going? You want us to order you guys some pizza? Um, you want a peanut buster parfait? Uh, we love what you're doing. We love your vision. Thank you for all that you do. And I didn't even know the guy. He's just advocating for us. And you know what? You never know what will happen in life until you just keep going and going and going. If you move in the midst, you don't know the encounters God has for you. You don't know the people that will fight for you that you don't even know. The miracles of provision, they happen when you move. If you sit back, you put yourself in a guaranteed position that you will be depressed, discouraged, pity party, and nobody will attend, and you'll sit within yourself and just analyze all the reasons why life is unfair, life is challenging, or life has not been good to me, or I have this struggle. That's the problem with our society. Everybody's wrapped up in the self-absorbed me, 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 me all the time. But yet the, the, the future is in moving towards someone else's pain when you have pain. The future is serving someone else. And I'm afraid that a lot of this worldly humanistic philosophy has gotten to the church where at the end of the day, it's all about my happiness. When the truth is, you're never going to be happy with that mindset because you can't force yourself to be happy and other, you can't force other people to be the source to make you happy. So it's never going to happen. The secret is to serve out of your pain. To have a burden and serve out of it anyways. To give your life away. And find a need and fill it and find a hurt and heal it. I remember my dad used to go pick up people, even when the church was like at this height of its growth. And he used to drive down and pick up people for church on Sunday morning. He said, son, come with me. Let's go pick up some people for church. I'm like, dad, why are you doing that? You have a bus ministry. He said, no, I need to do it. I need to prepare my heart for my sermon. I go, well, you, you, you prepared your notes. He said, no, no, no. More important, you got to prepare your heart. He'd pick up people and bring them to this big old church, and they didn't even know who he was. Like, oh, you're the pastor of this guy. Yeah. It's amazing. Prepare your heart. Just keep moving, helping, serving, loving, giving your life away. I close with this, and I'm out of here. And then we'll go to Chick-fil-A. Oh, wait, Nate, no, they're closed on Sundays. Oh, man, they're two good Christians. But anyways. God bless. No, that's awesome. But anyway, first day I came to L.A., I close with this. I promise you, this is it. Put your shoes on. I feel like I have to tell the story every time I come here. Everything is done is new, but I have to tell the story every time I come here. First day I came to L.A., I was um, 20 years of age. I was following a pastor that was 80, 80 years of age. And I just get there in the middle of the week, and I show up to a midweek service on a Wednesday night to introduce myself as a pastor. And there's ambulances that are sitting on the entryway of our building. 
And uh, I walk into the church and say, what happened here? They said, a young man's been killed in a drive-by shooting. They're, they're happening every week. It's really kind of like what's happened in Chicago. That was the area that was, the era that was happening in L.A., like those type of numbers, like 20, 30 people in our community a week. It was just unbelievable. And um, a rival Salvadorian gang came by and shot this other young man. It was just his body laid on the steps of our church. And I had to tell the church, I said, look, I'm supposed to preach tonight, but we can't. I can't preach when a boy's been killed. I said, let's cancel the service and let's do a little offering. Let's go across the street and minister to the family next to the liquor store. They said, Pastor, you don't get it. They go, the gang members stick to themselves. We at the church, we, we kind of stay to ourselves. We have a little agreement. I said, I know, but let's just go over there and bring the money to the mother and let's just see what might happen. How many will go with me? And nobody raised their hand. So I did what most preachers do when you can't get a volunteer, receive an offering. I said, I feel led to receive an offering. And uh, they gave me $38. I put it in my pocket, went across the street to an apartment attached to a liquor store, 20 years of age. Back then I was skinny. I was like so skinny that when I stuck out my tongue, I looked like a zipper. I mean, I was just like, I looked like the Home Alone kid. I mean, it was like so tough. Everybody thought I was Mormon in my neighborhood, you know, and... I went across the street, I knocked on the door with the money in my hand, the door opened, I, I was staring in the face of the biggest gang member I'd ever seen in my life. He looked down at me, I looked up at him, and then I looked up at God and said, God, I've always heard there's a place called heaven. Save me a place, because I'm coming home real soon. I mean, he has so many tattoos on his left bicep, the Old Testament would pop out, and the New Testament over here. He said, what do you want? He said, I'm just here to pray for the family and give some money to the mother. He's like, make it quick, Padre. You'll say, did you correct him when he called you Padre? Because you're not a Padre, you're a pastor. When you're that big, you can call me Padre, Rabbi, Bishop, whatever you want to call me, just don't kill me, you know what I mean? It's like, I'll take Padre for the day. He said, make it quick. I'm like, no problem. I walked in there and the mother was crying and guys were talking about revenge and violence. The first day in LA, I was showing up and my little Nissan Red Centro, you know, it helped my dad for three months. Really not even supposed to be here that long, but I uh, walked in, I gave her the money. I had prayed for her, she was so sweet. And I was walking out the door. I was heading towards the exit. And I was moving very, very quickly. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of David Wilkerson? That guy was unbelievable. He used to look at gang members and say, if you chop me up, every piece of me will tell you that Jesus loves you. That's not me. I'm giving the money. I'm out the door. I'm, you know, I'm, as I'm heading towards it, I'm, a hand grabbed me in the arm and spun me around, staring in the face of the gang members. He said, Padre, before you do something, I want you, when you leave, I want you to do something. I say, brother, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll rub your back. I'll rub your feet. I'll order a 40 at the liquor store next door for you. Oh, don't judge me. I'm just trying to stay alive. Thou shalt stay alive. Jeremiah 146, verse 15, California version. He said, I want you to stay and pray for the family. I didn't know what to do. I just left Bible college early. They didn't prepare me for gang ministry 101, drive-by 102. It's not in the curriculum. So we got in the circle, and they say, pray for me. And then I, I had a prayer. It's like prayer of need and time of comfort. It's called Christian autopilot prayer. You know those prayers that are general enough that you can put in any situation will get you out of any trouble? <laughs> that was my prayer. So we're gathered together in the circle and praying, dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll bless this habitation, you know, your glorification, and may your manifestation be here during this presentation, O oh God, of great sensation. I pray that you'll bless the birds and the trees and the flowers and the leaves and my knees. They're shaking pretty, please. Oh, geez. I'm like rhyming. Like, how am I flowing? It was like Lecrae, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Warren G, all in one prayer. I'm like, how am I flowing like this? Unbelievable. 
And right in the middle of my prayer, the Lord spoke to me and said, you will never get this opportunity ever again. Pray like you really mean it. It's okay. Lord, I pray that peace will prevail in this neighborhood. And nothing happened, so I prayed a little bolder. I said, God, I pray that these young men will realize that they're not as strong as they think they are, and they need Jesus. And right when I said those words, strong as they think they are, my right hand got squeezed. And my left hand, I said, oh, God, he hates my prayer. I'm going down. I'm going to die. But if I go down, I might as well get my name in the Fox's Book of Martyrs on the way out. So I'm going down a blaze of glory. And then you need to repent, and we can save lives in the future by stopping this activity. I'm, I'm just like, I, I just... You can't fear someone who has nothing to lose at that point. I, I knew I was heading six feet under, so I just going for it. And right in the middle of my prayer, I said, if you want to get saved, in just a second, raise my hand. Just a suggestion, but if you want to get saved. And my right hand was being raised, and my left hand was being raised. I looked around in that circle, and every single one of those gang members started raising their hands and just... Just showing up and moving in the direction towards that need. Just moving forward in the unfamiliar. Moving forward in the scary space. Those guys accepted Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior. My car never got broken into. Those guys had the best bodyguards from that day on. And they got saved, radically saved. And I went across the street to that liquor store. I walk in, the guy be like, hola, padre, como estas? One of the brothers of the gang members got saved who worked at the store, I'd be like, hola. I said, but I'm not padre, I'm pastor. He said, you're the padre. And the padre gets all the free food and drinks that he wants. I said, did you say free food, free drinks? He said, yes, I did. I said, bless you, my son. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, throwing holy water and everything on the brother. Don't let food get in the way of titles. Nehemiah 147, 35, fat guy version. I walked around and didn't make sense. God just spoke to me. He said, stop trying to be relevant. Just be revolutionary. Be there for people. Serve your generation. Run towards the need. Move to the need. Move towards the call of God for today is man's need right now. So whatever man's need is, run to it. And I've been healed of depression more times by putting myself in somebody else's world than by everyone trying to figure out why my mind is so messed up and I'm in this horrible place in my life. Everyone might be different, but to me, I have literally have learned to serve my way out of discouragement and depression for 28 years. Whenever I need healing, I go to the valley. I don't go to the mountaintop. I go to the valley because that's where I find God, in the valley of people's pain. Every head bowed, every eye closed all over this room. I'll be done in two minutes, but you're here today. Say, Pastor, I need to move. I need to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to know Jesus today. I want to make a move because heaven moved to earth to die on the cross. Jesus gave it all for me. He moved on my behalf, suffered, and went through the agony of the cross and 33 years knew what it was like to hunger, to be tempted, all these things, but yet passed every test because he loves you so much. That's why God passed every test, because he loved you that much. He was willing to do the things you could not do so that he could be a just Savior. Overcome the things you cannot overcome in order to be a just Savior. And today's your day, you'll say, you came from heaven to earth for me, Jesus. Now, I just lift up my head I lift up my arm and I just respond by saying today, forgive me, God, for allowing 
my own self to be the ruler of the universe. And today, I want to know you, Christ. I want you to lead me and guide me and be my Lord and Savior. When I say three, I want you to raise your hands all over this room. One, two, three, lift them up all over this room. Yes, 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 yes. They're going to keep raising them. Yes, 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 yes. Keep lifting them up. You're making a move right now. This is a move of a lifetime. This is the greatest move you've ever made in your entire life. This is bigger than any business decision that's been a success, any invention that's ever been made. Hands are going up everywhere. Keep raising them. You are moving in the direction towards eternal life, salvation. Together, everyone that raised your hands, you that did in the final words of, of my voice, repeat these words after me. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. And I repent of moving on my own. But now I move to you. And I trust you as Lord and Savior. Cleanse me of what I've done and make me who you want me to be as I surrender to your will, to your cause. Give me the power to hunger for the things you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you, church. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here today.